podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, or welcome, I should say, to this non-award-winning snooker podcast. We have not won an award. Uh, Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour on the 147 podcast, they did. They won uh, Best best Talk Show or something on, on, on the Sports Podcast Awards. Congratulations to them. Uh, we won nothing. <laughs> and, what, and what exactly would we win here? Worst production values, maybe? We could get that one. And I speak as someone who, in my uh, time as a playwright, I was once nominated in a category in a regional theatre awards. And I was the only nominee in the category, and I still didn't win. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Um, basically, you had to submit the script in advance, and we submitted the wrong... The director submitted the wrong version, and we were disqualified. Not only that... The, uh, the judge read out a rather rather humorless sort of uh, dressing down on about how people should take these things seriously. So I was the only nominee. I got my speech written, my suit on, didn't win. So it's no great surprise the podcast has been overlooked as well. Um, for the record, five nominations in awards, no wins uh, in the theatre. You know, people say about Jimmy White, he did win a lot of tournaments, Jimmy, over 30. Nothing over here. But that's not stopped me coming back. Uh, to celebrate a proper winner in Judd Trump. <laughs> there's no, there's no issue with, uh, with his, uh, trophies. I thought I'd mention, congratulations by the way, sincerely to Sean and Phil for that victory. Um, I brought it up because I know they won't mention it. I know they won't, but I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, but anyway, Judd Trump has won the German Masters in Berlin and it's his 27th world ranking event, fourth this season, incredibly. Um, he's back to where he was a few years ago. He won 14 ranking events in three seasons. Then he had a couple of years where well, he only actually won one. Um, won a couple of other tournaments as well, but he won one ranking event in Turkey. But now he's back to this relentless, uh, well, relentless winning. Six ranking finals, seven finals ill told, including the champion championships this season. And he's beaten Wee, a first time ranking finalist, 10-5 to win, uh, ranking title number 27. One behind Steve Davis now on 28. It then goes John Higgins on 31. Stephen Hendry on 36. Ronnie O'Sullivan 42. So that's the company he's in. And, well, you can only be impressed. I think what's impressive about Trump is that he does have that mentality that the most important event he plays in is the one he's playing in. In other words, he's not looking over his shoulder, looking around the corner at something else. The week he's at the event, whatever it is, he's all in, he's committed. And, uh, well, he's won another one. Ronnie O'Sullivan, 41. I think I said 42. You see, this is why we don't win awards. It's, <laughs> it's the, the shambolic nature of the way it's thrown together. Um... But anyway, a fantastic achievement for, for Trump, and uh, we're going to get into some emails about that. We've had some hot off the press already coming in, but I just want to say before we get into that, thank you, and I mean thank you to the German snooker public. They turned out in their thousands. Of course, it was an extended event, seven days rather than five. They got to see some of the big hitters guaranteed, and they turned out and they were just terrific. They were enthusiastic, they were passionate, they were respectful. They seem to actually be watching. <laughs> They're actually wrapped up in the action. If a mobile phone went off, it was sort of apologetically turned off. There was no real boorishness. People weren't drunk or shouting out inappropriately. You know, there was a good atmosphere, but it was respectful. And you could see the players were genuinely touched by it. Trump was. He actually said, and Trump's earned 800 grand already this season. That's including the Victor European Series bonus prize, 150,000. So 800 grand this season. But he actually described walking out on Saturday the semi-finals and money can't buy experience and he's absolutely right it was terrific and uh, that is made by that th those fans there and congratulations to all the organizers out in germany who work the promoters who work with world snooker tour to really make this such a great tournament 
And now that it's become bigger, and it's easy for me to say I know, but now it's become bigger and longer, I think it would be really great if it was made more prestigious by some more money put into it. A bigger first prize, a bigger prize funding total. To actually make it even bigger, it's you know it's still a tournament people prize very highly, but actually reflect that a little bit more, maybe, if it can be done with the prize money. It's easy to say that, obviously, but um, anyway, a very successful week, um, and we'll get on to the emails. Alpha Bonzi. Uh, after Judd Trump takes the honours in Berlin, my three quick ones are number one: What has this week in Berlin done from the game? Done for the game in continental Europe. Um, what's it done for the game? Well, it's it, what it's done is emphasised how popular snooker is in Germany. How there is a market there, maybe for more uh, tournaments. Obviously, they've got the European Masters. They've got this. Maybe there's room for more. Um, and it's proven that actually we do, you know, have other options other than the UK and China. Um, I mean, it just feels it just feels like the best crowd in the sport. Actually, I know the Crucible is what it is, and Ali Pali has its own sort of unique vibe. But uh, I think you go a long way to find better than that. Uh, Alpha, Alpha, if you're new listener, Alpha's Alpha always sends in three questions. Regular correspondent number two: How much will it help that part of the world that Bushku Revej from Hungary will join next season's Pro Tour? I'll answer that later, Alpha, because we've had an email about that. And number three, if Luca Brussel's world title win couldn't get an event on in Belgium, she's currently like a former side, could the future be Finland after the run of apparently popular exhibitions? Uh, maybe, but again, you know, I've had people say, well, I, I, there have been very well-attended exhibitions on Finland. I spoke to Mark Selby who went out there just before Christmas. Um, but <laughs> again, what sort of event? You know, people say, oh, let's have a ranked event on there. You know, it's going to cost a lot of money and it's not as straightforward as that. But certainly... It's absolutely true to say that there are many pockets, or puns intended, of interest in the game um, that, you know, we, it would be nice to see explored, certainly. And Alpha says, one final point, I wonder about the referees. Are they employees of Wilson and Couture, or their national association, or Matchroom? Are they loaned by WST to Matchroom for their events? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There's, I think there's different, um, <clears throat> different scenarios for different referees. There are certain contract referees, so they get a salary to referee Wilson and Couture events. And then a lot of them actually are sort of contracted on a, da- on a daily rate. So they have other jobs, a lot of them. Um, and they take time off work. I think Tatiana Williston, who refereed the final, you know, would, would take time off work to referee that tournament. Um, so some of them, there are some contract referees, but most of them would be engaged on a sort of freelance basis. Andrew Newman writes, I've just finished watching the German Masters final. I particularly enjoyed watching Sijar Wee with his confident playing style. However, he seems like yet another young talent breaking through but not winning tournaments in the way players like Hendry or the class of 92 did in their late teens or early 20s. Is this because snooker's played at a higher standard now than it was in the 80s and 90s, or were those players just better than the young talent of today? Either way, I hope to see CJ we return to the Worlds in a couple of months' time. Thanks for the podcast, as always. Thank you, Andrew. Um, well, obviously, it was his first final. He's only 21. I think it's worth saying that. We did have, and I know, you know, we're almost not allowed to mention them now, but the fact is, Yambing Tao won a, won a ranked event when he was 19. So he won one when he was young. Um, we'll see how he gets on in the next final. I think, you know, it's not unusual, maybe, to, um, in your first final, to struggle a little bit. I think the difference, actually, in the match was the safety game. I think Trump's safety game is uh, superb now. And CJ always he's not as good, and he made some some kind of odd odd decisions, maybe some shots that just didn't come off. He's potting. I mean, he pots a great ball. He really does. And you know, he made that century tonight, and and strikes the ball really well. 
lost position a couple of times, but that's not the problem. The problem, I think, is slightly the tactical game, but that's where Trump was at his age. When he was 21, he didn't really have the tactical game. It's something you learn. I think we'll see CJ Wee go deep in other tournaments. He's up to 24 in the world now. Um, we'll see if he'll get in the Players' Championship um, through the Welsh Open, which he has qualified for. It's going to be touch and go there, but then if he got in that, obviously... You know, a chance to get in the top 16 at the moment. He looks like he'll have to qualify for the Crucible. I agree, though. It'd be nice to see him back there for sure. And we move on to Jake Warwick. Now, all these emails are hot off the press after tonight's final. Jake says, firstly, I know you're not one for reading out praise. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. But anyway, but thank you for your ongoing dedication to the sport, including excellent commentary and this podcast, which should be a staple for any diehard snooker fan. Thank you, Jake. Tell that to the awards committee. By the way, I have no idea how you enter these awards. I've never even thought of it. I mean, why would, why, why would I, really? Just setting yourself up for a fall. Anyway, uh, Jake says, I've just finished watching Judd Trump lift his third German Masters title as his incredible run this season continues. I and many others continue to see a lot of undeserved hate being thrown Trump's way online, stating how lucky he is and how he's only won this one because Ronnie hasn't bothered with it. I'd like to think those people aren't true, true snooker fans and aren't educated enough to appreciate a great of the sport when they see one. Most, most titles this season, most prize money this season, most centuries this season. How lucky can one guy be? Also bear in mind it's inevitable. He will shortly be second on the all-time centuries list and may well hit a 1,000 this season. I was there in Leicester for his defeat to Ronnie, where that Miss Black, then Miss Brown. But for that, it could have been a very different game. Just a note on the German Masters itself, what a tournament and a venue it is. The crowd was superb all week, respectful and supportive in perfect amounts for all the players. Then finally there has to be a mention for C. What a run to the final it was and an incredible talent for the future. The experience he's gained over the past season will stand him in good stead going forward and I wish him all the best. Apologies for the lengthy email, myself and the rest of the snooker fan base are looking forward to a jam-packed end to the season peaking in Sheffield. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, I mean, those last points, absolutely right. Um, Well, I mean, look, I mean, I'm sure Nelson Mandela would have got hate online. I mean, everyone gets hate online because it's online. It's where, you know, frankly, oddballs live. Um, There's an old saying that jealousy is the tribute mediocrity pays to success. Anyone pointing at Joe Trump and saying he's not been successful enough Point back at them and ask them what they've done in, with their lives and their careers. I can guarantee it's pretty much nothing of any worth or any note. He's an amazingly successful snooker player. Incredibly successful. You know, and, and the facts just speak for themselves. I've already mentioned some of them in this podcast. And it's ludicrous to criticise him. Absolutely ludicrous. He's a great of the sport. That's a fact. He's achieved huge amounts. He's still only 34. And he can achieve a lot more. Now... It's absolutely right to say, to be regarded alongside the multiple world champions, he has to be a multiple world champion. So he's got to win it at least one more time. He may do, we don't know. Uh, but every other box has been ticked, and his relentless pursuit of trophies is very admirable. And put it this way, OK? He fills his mantelpiece with trophies, not other people's opinions. They are ten a penny, and your opinion is only really worth what people are prepared to pay for it, which in most cases is nothing. The fact is... He's at 800 grand this year playing snooker. <laughs> you can spend that. You can't spend opinions. So I'm very um, um, admiring of Judd Trump. I look forward to seeing him at the Championship League, where, of course, he can. And he's saving it, clearly, for the Championship League this week. He can actually overtake John Higgins on the all-time 
centuries lit. He's one behind. Having said that, John actually, who's <laughs> supposed to be coming in in the later group, he's actually coming in in group three on Monday because um, Ali Carter's withdrawn. Now, I'm not saying John's doing that to uh, try and stave off the, uh, the the charge from Trump. He could make some centuries himself there, John, of course. But uh, anyway, that's an interesting little jewel this week to follow in Leicester. Uh, but thank you for the email. And yeah, I think, look, all sorts of things get said online. It's not the real world. You know, you hear people say, snooker fans think this, snooker fans think that, because they've read a few comments online. It's not the real world. It, it's representative of the sort of people that want to spend their time online making those statements. And we know from election results and other things that in the real world, things are actually very different. And I know for a fact, because I see it at tournaments, people think Trump is brilliant. They love watching him play. The viewing figures are great when he plays. People like him. And I hope he knows that because he should be very proud. I'm sure he is of all of his achievements. And we, as a snooker community, should applaud them. And I do. Now, Matt Wilson writes, he says, uh, long-time listener, first-time emailer, having recently attended the Masters and the World Grand Prix, I would like to add my thoughts on a few topics. I know in recent podcasts you've spoken extensively about commentary, and it might seem like an exhausted topic, but here we go anyway. With the advent of audience earpieces, commentators are no longer just speaking to those watching on the television. They need to be aware of those listening in the auditorium. The BBC commentators historically have provided entertaining quips and stories that are often well-received by listeners, and this adds a pleasant, light-hearted element to their laughter and depending on the timing of those moments, they can quite often put a player off while uh, they are preparing to play their next shot. Personally, I feel certain BBC commentators are guilty of this more than others, and I do feel it's something they need to consider, as it can and often does impact play, something which commentary should never do. At the Masters, I didn't have an earpiece, but there were several occasions when this happened in the best of 11 I watched. At the World Grand Prix, again, I watched without ITV commentary, but I didn't notice it once in the evening session that I attended. Perhaps the ITV commentators are more aware or been briefed on the topic. Perhaps you can confirm for me. Regardless, it irritates me each time it happens, so it's good to get it off my chest. Well, speaking for myself, Matt, I've never said anything funny, so that's probably one <laughs> no one's ever laughed. But um, I think you do have to be aware of the uh, the um, the fact that it's going out in the arena, yes. Um, but a lot of it's about timing. Um, you, you can, you know, in a sort of slow passage of play, or, or, or if someone's taken a long time, you know, getting the extended rest out or something... Maybe that's the time to do that, but um, you have to be aware, obviously, people are playing for their livelihoods. Um, Matt continues, on the topic of seating at events, I agree with the comments of most others. The master's seating is cramped, but not too uncomfortable. I'm six foot three for context. And the fact is usually, the fact is usually full probably doesn't help. The Grand Prix seating had a few extra inches for legroom and seemingly widthways too, which was indeed very welcome. My experience as a first-time visitor to Ali Pali was generally very good. The queue zone was well attended and the queue to get involved not too long. Food options were decent and the queues for these at the bar very reasonable. A bit pricey but more of a sign of the times than anything else. The toilets were very poor with only one obvious option. I can't imagine this was the same for the well-oiled fans who'd enjoyed the darts across the previous weeks. The arena and view were excellent though and left me feeling as though I was very privileged to be there. Overall, a solid 8 out of 10 from me. It was also nice to bump into Nick Metcalf in the foyer, and I had a very nice chat with him. I don't think Nick was there uh, sort of doing a personal appearance. I think he was just there by chance, but anyway. Um, at the Grand Prix, there was quite a different feel to everything. No signage to memory lane, so I'd approach the player's entrance first before having to be re redirected. Not many food outlets in the near vicinity outside either. It was a Tuesday evening, so I think the curry house you mentioned in the last podcast was closed. 
A very long queue for a drink from the bar inside. So long, in fact, I chose not to bother, as it was at least a 15-minute wait. The queue zone was a little underwhelming, although Mark Selby was being filmed with a Leicester City footballer, and it was easy to get a good view of that. The arena was terrific. Very good view and atmosphere. Williams and O'Sullivan were playing, so that was to be expected. And the crowd was very respectful, but plentiful in their adulation for the talent on show. Seven out of ten for the morning side. It's right that it's not the best signposted venue. I mean, that's just a fact. Like I said, I had to direct people there myself. So um, maybe if there's... The problem is Memory Lane itself is, is a very narrow lane. You know, you kind of could go past it without noticing. Um, but anyway, hopefully if you go next year, if there's a tournament there, you'll, uh, you'll know the way. Matt concludes, thanks for the podcast. It keeps me company on long drives to and from work each week. And I particularly enjoy it when your amusement at something develops into a chuckle. It's the little things in life. Please send my regards to Clive too, who I hope he's keeping well. Ideally, miss his dulcet tones on commentary. Well, thank you, Matt. Yes, Clive, actually, uh, he, he's just out of hospital. He had a fall at home, so um, he's recuperating. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, there'll be, he'll be okay um, in that uh, recovery. But uh, I'll, pass on, I'll pass on your best wishes to him. Uh, Hayden Papworth. You see, now, you see, now this dream uh, that I had like, last week is uh, a lot of people have been interested. In. I had I had two dreams the same. Um, just if you weren't listening last week, that John Higgins would play Sean Murphy in the World Final. It would be nine eight up going into the last day. Uh, no other information because I woke up twice, but I had the dream twice of John Higgins v Sean Murphy in this year's World Final. And Hayden says, listening to your story on the recent episode about your World Championship final prophecy, reminded me of a dream I had a few days prior to the shootout. I had a dream that Ben Wollaston would win the tournament. Needless to say, he didn't. <laughs> I, had t- I had tickets for the final day and enjoyed my trip to Swansea, but my dream did not come true. I wonder if, if yours will. Well, we'll find out, won't we, in a, in, uh, in a few months' time, a couple of months' time. And on the same issue, Mark Wright has written, I just listened to your latest podcast in which you set yourself up as a betting tipster. I immediately looked at the odds of Sean Murphy, 16 to 1, and John Higgins, 18 to 1. Now, I'm not one to complain. But I've got a few complaints. First off, if I was to place £1 sterling on both players, I'd make the following profit. Sean Murphy, £17 returned. And John Higgins, 19 Great. We've made a sweet, sweet profit. However, those of a more pedantic nature will notice I also need to consider the £1 I would have wasted on the player who didn't win this year. It's the same reason I only do one line, not two, in the National Lottery. Imagine winning a million pounds one week. Great. Another sweet, sweet profit. But I would always be tormented by the wasted pound on the other line. You get my logic, I'm sure. I also note that you picked two players at fairly short odds. I didn't pick them. I dreamt them, uh, Mark. I dreamt them. I didn't pick them. They picked me. <laughs> I was minding my own... I was asleep. I was minding my own business. Uh, he says, now, if you were to try again and dream about maybe Rianne Evans, 4,000 to 1, and Re- Rebecca Kenner, also 4,000 to 1, then you can see the profit margin increases considerably. All I'm saying is just give us one name and stop messing everyone about there was a carry-on film called Carry On At Your Convenience in, in which Sid James and Hattie Jakes owned a budgie called Joey. Joey also, also set himself up as a tipster. Sid James would read out the horses' names and Joey would ring his bell to indicate the winner. Now, I'm not calling you Joey the budgie, but if you get me the winner of the Worlds this year, you'll forever be known as Dave the budgie. Now, get yourself off to bed and try and dream a decent odds winner. One name only, please. Thanks for keeping me entertained and informed about the wonderful game of snooker. Well, thank you, Mark. Well, uh, yes, I mean... You're speaking my language here. Carry on at your convenience. You're quite right. Hatton's first mention, I think, of Hattie Jakes on the podcast. And, you know, it's only taken a few years, but uh, uh, finally she's been mentioned. It's a fantastic uh, 
vignettes that. Yes, the, the budget, Hattie Jakes plays this. I mean, don't get too bogged down here from a film of 1971. But Hattie Jakes, she, she owns this budgie. They own this budgie, they're married. And uh, it's never spoken. I mean, budgies don't speak, but it's never made a noise, you know, any sort of noise. And Hattie Jakes, he's trying to cajole it into doing so, doesn't speak. Sid James comes in, starts reading out the, the horses and for each race, and when he gets to a certain horse, the budgie makes a noise. And inevitably, Sid James puts the money on that on that horse and makes a killing down the bookies. Um, the best carry-on film, Carry On Cleo. Anyway, we, uh, this is, we're not here to talk about that, I know, but uh, Carry On Cleo, the best. Uh, I, I'm not going to have any argument on that score. Brian McGovern... Right, I just saw a clip where you were commentating where a lady came on during the English Open and attempted to pop the black for Ronnie. Question is, when was it? Very direct uh, question, Brian. Well, it was the 2017 uh, English Open in, in Barnsley. Um, and, yeah, you're quite right. It was the end of the match, and uh, she ran out, and uh, who knows from where, sort of ran round the table. And, and I always thought with that, Ronnie actually saved the day a little bit because it was a bit embarrassing for the security, and it kind of just looked a bit ridiculous. But he gave her his cue and gave her the chance to pop the black. She had a couple of attempts and uh, they weren't successful, I think it's fair to say. But that's when it was, 2017. Uh, Richard Colley wrote in last week. Um, he was having trouble with the World Snooker Tour website and trying to find the German Masters draw. But he, he's written back and all is well here. He says, follow my previous email. I found the German Masters draw sheet and format. I found this by going to the news section and filtering the news by draws. I'm emailing just in case this helps anyone else looking for the same information. So there we are. It's a happy ending. Happy ending. Uh, Lee Wall he says, In your last podcast, you asked for suggestions of cigarette-based snooker players. Well, you didn't actually ask, but nevertheless, I've come up with a few. I appreciate the joke section is currently being rested, but this could be the smoke section. OK, so, as Lee quite rightly says, we didn't ask for this, but he's, <laughs> but he's come up with snooker players... Uh, based on cigarettes, okay? So here we go. <clears throat> These are the suggestions. Okay, Ash Lee Hoogill, Benson and Hedges Wollaston, <laughs> there's more, Ian Burns, Jimmy Light, Nigel Bond Street, Capstan Moody, okay? Commentator Ted Lowe Tar, referee Michaela Tab, reporters, Nicotine Metcalf and Filter Haig. Venue, Coffs. You see, now they give these awards to Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour. They're obviously not listening to this, are they? This is, this is absolute gold. She says, of course I'm glad we no longer have smoking in snooker. I like to encourage safety, even if it's just a roll-up behind a colour. You see, it's all there. All the rib-tickling wordplay's there. Thank you, Lee. Um... I don't know. I don't know if that's a long run, going to be a long-running feature or not. But uh, any, if you've got any other cigarette-based snooker players, <laughs> do let us know. Now, uh, Dave Farrer, uh, the broadcaster, was wrote in uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, well, he's, he's had to write him with an apology here. He says, "We referenced my previous email. You're of course absolutely right. There's never been a Smith at the Crucible." The only explanation is that in the midst of my research, I succumbed to crucible fever, a little-known condition that is brought on by overdosing on a surfeit of details from every world championship since 1977. Symptoms include sporadically humming the tune of Snooker Loopy, doing an impression of Dennis Taylor's 1985 celebration at inopportune moments, and going to fancy dress parties in a blue waistcoat and trousers, and saying, I've come as Dean O'Kane. Recommended treatment is a liberal dose of the Snooker Scene podcast and a good lie down. And it's only February. 
Best wishes and enjoy the German Masters. And to you, Dave, well, you know, you're allowed one mistake every couple of years. Because uh, you mentioned Dennis Taylor there, uh, wagging his finger. I actually spoke this week to the man he wagged his finger at <laughs> for a project I'm doing. So uh, that all will be revealed later. But um, very interesting story, actually. So he was the waggy. Uh, Dennis was the wagger, I suppose. Now, Frank in Germany, who's been watching the German Masters, uh, has got a, a specific question here. He said, I've listened to your podcast for a while now. I like the casual and often funny but competent way you talk about the game. Big thanks for that. I will keep listening. It's often funny, and that suggests sort of once every four episodes. But anyway, uh, he says, here's my question. If a player's behind in the frame but just about able to tie, the commentators always assume that said player will play for a respot to win the frame. Very often it would be easier to play for a snooker earn foul points along the way in order to win the frame outright. Now, is there anything in the rules that prevents the player from snookering his opponent when the frame can still be won by other means? I haven't been able to find anything. Looking forward to a comprehensive answer. Well, Frank, thanks for the question. No, I mean, there's nothing in the rules, no. It it used to be, I think if you go back in the day, quite often players would play for the snooker, but now it's very much the case that they play for the respot. If there's, obviously, if you lose position, uh, you know, you might play the snooker or if there's just a really obvious chance to do so but it's just I think the the way the games become more attacking in general players tend to just try and clear up um, so but there's nothing in the rules and, and it's a fair question because uh, you know people are at different stages of their sort of snooker watching life and not everyone knows every nuance so it's, it's good to actually have questions like that that we can uh, that we can answer and uh, Peter Neville meantime he says, I've looked back at the last 32 lineups of ranking tournaments, so that's every ranking tournament except the players and tour, and looked how many non-UK players are competing at this stage. There has now been a two-year streak, 31 tournaments, where at least eight, a quarter of the field, international players have made up the last 32. At least four Chinese players have made up this eight in every tournament. The last time it didn't happen was the 2022 shootout in January of that year. I thought this was worth sharing. I expect the first half of the field, 16 players, will happen soon. The closest it's been is 15 players at the Wuhan Open. Well, thank you, Peter. That is interesting. Um, and I think good to hear, really. Um, the game is still... There is still a sort of grip in the UK because so much of the infrastructure is based here and the qualifying and so on. But there are more and more... And it's not just China. There's other countries as well. Um who are producing good players. And we just had the, the World Snooker Federation Junior event that was won by Bushku Rebej from Hungary. He's going to be the first Hungarian, first player from Hungary on the tour, which is fantastic. Just 17. Obviously, it's a big step up, but, you know, it's very exciting for him. And, you know, a few years ago, the idea of a Hungarian snooker player would have seemed unlikely. But, again, Eurosport, the coverage there, the... the, the um, the scope now, the range of coverage we have around the world is bringing this great game, this great sport to so many people. And, uh, you know, every now and again, someone comes through from one of these countries and, and proves that, you know, they can compete and that they have promise. And good luck to him and I look forward to see him, seeing him on tour next season. But thanks for that. And uh, well, do let us know, uh, you know, if we do reach that uh, as you say, half the field being non-British in a, in a ranking event. Keep monitoring it. Now then, uh, James Scott, he says, I've just recently finished reading Clive Everton's excellent book, Black Farce and Cue Ball Wizards, 
as you might have worked out from the subject of this email. Yes, well, the email is called Black Force and Cubal Wizard, so <laughs> it was a clue, James. He says, my question is simple. Were the politics and the characters involved in the game in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s really as bad as Clive describes? And what was it like working with Clive while he had to endure the rubbish the authorities dragged him through? It's, of course, a testament to the brilliance of the game of snooker that it managed to survive, despite the ineptitude and pettiness of those running the game at the time. But it boggles the mind that he had to endure two decades of dross. <laughs> thank you, as ever, for the podcast and your commentary. Well, thank you, James. Uh, yes, James is talking about Clive's book here, which is uh, it's sort of partly autobiography, but it's mainly a sort of biography of, yeah, the politics of snooker, I guess. Um, I mean, <sighs> I, would, I would direct people to read the book, really, um, because Clive was there throughout it. I wasn't there throughout it. I sort of came in at the late 90s. Um, the politics was bad, yes, but it was mainly the structure of the, of the way the game was run. There were some pretty bad characters involved, but there were also some perfectly decent characters who just got swallowed up by the system. Because the WPBC at the time was trying to do everything. It was trying to be a commercial body running the professional sport and maximising the commercial assets. It was also trying to be a players' union, and it was trying to be rules and regulatory body, also disciplining the players. It, it had too many functions and they competed against one another. And what you tended to get was a lot of self-interest. You'd get cronies and people's friends being elected to the board. You'd get threats of EGMs voting people off if you didn't do what they wanted. It was all very small. Snooker had outgrown, you know, its original sort of constitution, if you like. That, that would have been fine in the 1970s, but once we became a, a sport that was worth, you know, multi-millions and not live on TV around the world, it needed a better structure. And there was constant infighting. And as I say, it wasn't all bad people, but it just became less about the snooker and more about who could get one over on someone else. All men as well, that's the other thing. All men with big egos, you know, swanning about, you know, trying to, trying to be self-important. And the game continued because, as you say, it's so brilliant. And I think we should absolutely credit, if we go back certainly to the early 2000s, there was a threat of the, the breakaway tour and all that. We should credit the players like Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams, Stephen Hendry stood at the top, Paul Hunter, Matthew Stevens, Ken Doherty, Peter Ebden, Stephen Lee was still going strong, Marco Fu. I mean, there's a lot of others as well. But these guys kept the game, you know, on track, really, because they were producing great snook. If you look at Paul Hunter's Masters wins around that time, you know, that, that, that proved there was nothing wrong with the actual game. There was something wrong with the administration. One of the best days for me in, in the history of the game was when Barry Hearn took it over. Uh, 20, what, 2010, 2009, 2010, when he won that vote. Because it ended all of that at a stroke. All of that politics, all the EGMs, AGMs, all that nonsense just went away at a stroke. And then, he started to deliver more tournaments, to create more excitement. You've got to remember ITV at the time didn't show any snooker, and now they've got six events. The Eurosport contract has been, um, was re-signed for ten years, um, and with that, the, the digital streaming and everything else on Discovery+. Plus. Um, so I, I was delighted that all that went away. It wasn't pleasant to be around at times. Um, and, you know, Clive was <laughs> obviously very forensic in his... Um, examination of what was happening and that didn't always endear him to people and I think also from his perspective he would probably admit that you can become a little too obsessed it's not great for your mental health to be that obsessed by it 
when really at root you're just a, a snooker person you want to enjoy the sport um, so they were not always happy times but the sport survived and it started to thrive after that it went from three and a half million prize money to 14 million they want to raise it to 20 million and we'll see next season when the calendar comes out if that's going to happen or not um, it's better now it's not perfect by any means it's not perfect but it's much better and we're seeing an uplift right now this season in, in viewing figures we're seeing an uplift in live audiences we're seeing I think more dynamism in general I think we're seeing better commercial decisions being made it doesn't mean as I say everything is you know fine but it's much better than it was then in terms of just the way things are being done and the way um, the sort of stability it's brought to the actual sport um, I think there are issues more outside promoters would like to get involved and there are issues to be resolved with that the players contract is something that's going to be coming to a head pretty soon I think whether the leading players are happy with those contracts or not but that's all you know <laughs> that's kind of all in the background most people who listen to this podcast just like watching snooker and you know they have a thriving circuit to enjoy um, whereas back then we go back to the sort of the low point we had six ranking events in the Masters <laughs> and that was it um, so yeah the, the Clive's booked very um, forensically examines all of that time and and the way I suppose the truth is snooker outgrew its original sort of constitution the old WPSA model was fine as I say you know 50 years ago but it was not going to fly in the face of you know the, 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 the new age if you like and that's why things have to change and they have changed and they've changed for the better Vincent writes in. Now, Vincent wrote in uh, again recently. He said, I hope you're well. I appreciate your views on my email last week, rehabbing the major tournaments spread around the globe. Now, yes, Vincent, I wasn't dismissing the idea, but I just didn't agree with it. He wanted to maybe rotate the major events outside of the UK. It's not not the worst idea, but I just don't think it's practical, basically. He says, anyway, I feel this is a niche issue I've stumbled across, but I wonder if you agree with me. I'm starting to get really hacked off with snooker players placing their chalk on the side of the table when they have to stretch for a shot, or indeed sometimes when they're using the rest or spider. For me, it spoils the visual and cheapens the game somewhat. I understand this isn't really an issue in pool, but this is snooker. We don't have cubes of chalk on the side of the table. I think players should receive a four-point penalty for each and every time their players shot with their chalk on the side of the table. What are your thoughts on this? Well, just on that, I mean, that's not in the rules, is it? So you can't, it's not up to referees to just hand out penalties if, if it's not in the rules it, it looks you're right it looks aesthetically displeasing um, I have to say it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you clearly you, you seem very angry about it and that's fine I, I like uh, I quite like people being angry about things that don't really matter <laughs> but um, yeah it doesn't I, I don't I, if, if I had a choice I would say don't do it but it doesn't sort of offend me um, I, I suppose it it's always the question in any sport, what image are you trying to portray? What image is snooker trying to portray? We seem confused by it. We have, like the Masters has gone quite upmarket, you know, you've got hospitality and you've got a very sort of elite feel. It's quite expensive as well. But then you go to the shootout and everyone's drunk and shouting out and it's the opposite. Um, most tournaments are kind of family friendly, which is great. That's how they should be. So it's, we have quite a nice vibe, I think. Um, but... Uh, 
yeah, do we want to, you know, you get some t- tournaments where they're playing T-shirts and you see all the tattoos and everything. I mean, do, what what is the image that Snooker is trying to portray? I don't think we kind of have decided that. And maybe because we have such a broad appeal and such a diverse audience, we don't need to sort of define it in that way. Maybe that's the answer. We, we just welcome everybody and that's fine. Um, uh, I'm going to bang the drum again here, but uh, I noticed, I mean, I, was, I watched a little bit on Netflix of uh, there's this Six Nations series behind the scenes of the Six Nations. I'm not in, interested in rugby, but I quite like those sports series that take you behind the scenes. There's one coming up in golf, a new series on Netflix. There was one breakpoint, the tennis one, which I think is really good because it shows you, it's quite sanitised. It's sort of advertorial in a way for tennis, but also it does show you behind the scenes what the players go through, what they're feeling. And uh, there's one being filmed by Sky on the dart circuit. There's been lots in football, Formula One, of course, famously. They've done it in boxing. They've done it in American football. Pretty much the only sport now that doesn't hasn't done one is snooker. I mean, what a massive missed opportunity to, in terms of, as I say, trying to define the image of the sport or sell the sport to a wider audience. You know, because the circuit is <laughs> it's kind of a bizarre place. It I think it would be really compelling viewing to take people behind the scenes. We saw it in the Ronnie O'Sullivan. Age of Everything documentary on Amazon Prime, you know, in that dressing room at the Crucible, it's kind of fascinating. So I think there's an opportunity being missed not to do that. That's not what you're asking about, though. I understand that. But he's not finished yet, by the way, Vincent. He says, uh, just to say, I was shocked to hear Adam Ahmed's email to you last week regarding a referee using foul language whilst he was mic'd up. One might expect to hear that kind of language at a bar and nightclub, but to hear language like that being used prior to a qualifying match for the World Open, well, I was somewhat shocked and disappointed. Thanks for the regular podcast episodes there, Essential Viewing. P.S. I might put a fiver on your Murphy v. Higgins World Championship premonition. Well, just on that, uh, I did say last week, I did advise not to wager, but it's up to you what you do. Yeah, I mean, the referee, at least, no, that was just, uh, they shouldn't do that, and, and they've been told, and, and I'm sure it won't happen again. Now, of course, I, needless to say, and, and again, the awards committee, uh, no doubt, took this into account. I, I forgot to read out the email about Revesh who's just won the junior title, but I've found it now. Lawrence Carpenter, sorry, Lawrence, um, overlooked you earlier, but he says, thanks as always for the great podcasts. I've really enjoyed the extra ones you've thrown in recently. Thank you. Uh, he says, I was pleased to see the young Hungarian, Bosku Revesh, win the WSF junior event this week to earn his tour card, as I think having more mainland European players can only help expand the game. I'm interested to hear if you know much about him or how popular the game is in Hungary. Do you feature in their podcast charts at all? As I remember, you've charted in various countries over time. I'm sure you're a regular in the top 100 in Fiji for a while. Well, I was, uh, Lawrence. In fact, I was number one. I don't like to crow, but uh, I, I, I was. That's a fact. In fact, I found out this week, and I'll get, get to your main point in a moment, Lawrence, but I found out this week that we have one listener in, in Andorra. <laughs> now, I, I don't know the snooker scene in Andorra, but if you are that listener, do contact us, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com, because uh, I'd love to know about your involvement in snooker and your interest. What is the interest there? Can you play? Is there a national champion in Andorra? What's the highest break in Andorra? We want to hear about Andorra, and we may, if there's enough interest, go there live. I'm just talking nonsense. We're not going to do that at all. But anyway, do do contact us if you are that person. But anyway, um, Hungary, well, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's on Eurosport. As I said earlier, there's over 60 countries take the Eurosport coverage. So once you're on TV, you have a chance to be seen, you have a chance to be... Um, absorbed, I suppose. And snooker is, as we know, the perfect TV sport. So clearly, he's seen it at some point there. I'm sure that's how he's got into it. 
I don't know. I mean, someone, if anyone lives in Hungary, let us know how many tables are there, how many clubs are there, what opportunities are there to play there? Is it a growing scene? How many good players are there? I'm not going to presume to, to answer that because I don't know. But if anyone in that part of the world, please do let us know. Um, but cl- clearly TV and, and, and online as well has helped, uh, has helped spread the interest. And as I said earlier, look forward to seeing him on tour. No more emails. If you've sent one, uh, after the final and I haven't read it out because I've recorded it before it's arrived. That's all it is. So in the meantime, um, that's it for this week. Now, of course, as I say, the Championship League, I'll be there this week. Um, they say when the fun stops, stop. Well, it hasn't stopped. I'll be there. Um, and then the Welsh Open next week, uh, the final leg of the home nations. Of course, the bonus prize has been snaffled. Some say trousered by Trump. Um, and on and on we go. Players Championship, uh, more Championship League, Riyadh Masters, uh, World Open, Mixed Doubles, Tour Championship, and then the World Championship itself is two months away. Um, so that's it. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. They have other podcasts that may well tickle your fancy. You can email us, snookerzinepodcast at mail.com. Um, and yes, that's it. So uh, keep all the correspondence coming. Congratulations again to Judd Trump, a very special player, great talent, great champion. And uh, once again, thank you to everyone in Germany, in Berlin, for making that event so memorable. We'll be back next week. If I knew the German for goodbye-bye, I would uh, I would do it, but I, I suspect it would be offensive. <laughs> and, you know, any, any chances of winning at the German Sports Podcast Awards would be sunk forever. So I should just say, in English, as we always do, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.